Well, good morning, sisters and brothers in Christ, and we are going to jump in. This is a lengthier text today, and so I want us just to kind of jump into this story, the story that you just heard, but I think it's important for us to hear it uh, directly from Scripture as well. And so it comes to us, this particular story, from the 20. Second chapter of Genesis, and I will be reading uh, for the first 19 verses. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And When they had come to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this, And have not withheld your son, your only son. I will indeed bless you. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you on this beautiful morning. After a night of rain and storm, we are reminded of your awesome power. We are reminded that you are the creator and that we are the creation. 
And as your creation, God, we yearn to learn more about you, to be shaped more like you. And so we pray, God, that you would be with us in this time. We pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So last week, if you were here, you will recall that we were introduced to uh, Abraham, or as he was then called, Abram. And Abram was there, and, and God came and told him immediately that he needed to leave, that he needed to go from his country, from his father's house, from his family. And he wasn't told exactly where to go, but simply to go. And, and God told him that if he went that he would experience blessings beyond what he would ever receive had he decided to simply stay at home. Not only would he be blessed, God said, but he would be blessed in order to bless others, that that others would be able to hear through him and to experience the love of God. Of God. And we talked about the fact that as uh, Abraham's children, as his sons and his daughters, that we are called also to both having been blessed to then go out and to bless others. And so that's exactly what Abraham does, right? He's 75 years old, but he decides to take off. And so he begins to journey. And not long after that, famine comes upon the land. Not exactly what Abraham had pictured, to be sure. And so he decides then to go to Egypt. And so he's in Egypt. But all of a sudden now, this great promise that Abraham had been given uh, by God, these great hopes, they seem to be diminished a bit. Abraham, it seems, began to question them. He began to question whether or not God would really come through. So he began to take matters into his own Hands. And he told Sarah to, to tell others that she was actually his sister and not his wife so that, she, so that he would be protected and would not be killed. And while it may have seemed a great plan to him, before long troubles came upon Egypt because of what Abraham had done. And so before much longer, Abraham and Sarah are kind of kicked out, if you will, of Egypt, off continuing Moving, But it's important to remember that the promise that God had given to Abraham, even though Abraham had not been faithful in that time, those promises were still on his life. And in the next several chapters, remember that came from chapter 12, this is chapter 22, over those next nine or ten chapters, we see Abraham's journey kind of continuing in this way. Times when he would be faithful and then times when he would struggle. I mean, Abraham did yet one more time this this whole she's not my wife, she's my sister thing. Right? So he didn't learn real quick. And so he continued to struggle and yet God continued to to guide him. And God continued to have him underneath his promise. And and Abraham even took his matters into his own hands in, in terms of having a child. And so he had a different child and all of these struggles. And yet God stayed with him. And yet Abraham kept coming back and kept trusting in the midst of his untrusting ways. It looks quite a bit like most of our lives, I have a feeling. And so finally then we reach this time and and Isaac is born. And finally this dream, this hope 
25 years later comes true. This hope of Abraham that God had said it will come true took 25 years to come to fruition. So if you feel like you've been praying for a week or a month and wondering why nothing has happened, wait a quarter of a century. Finally, the hope, the dream comes in the shape of Isaac. And it's hard to know how much time has passed. Most think probably somewhere around a decade later. Maybe Isaac is around 10 years, give or take a few. And God appears to Abraham again and says, Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. Take your only son. Okay, take your son. Okay. The one you love. Okay, I heard that the first time. Got him. Okay. Isaac. Okay, that's enough. I get it. Take Isaac. I'm happy to do it. Where to? Take him to Moriah. Okay, Moriah. I think we can find Moriah. This time he's actually giving me a place to where I can go. That's helpful. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now at this point, I want to take a step back from the story and just say, what? I mean, what in the world is going on? I got to tell you, this is a troubling story for me. It's troubling in many ways that it's in the Bible to me, and it's troubling as well that we put it in a children's Bible. I really wanted Scott to preach on this passage I remember learning this story as a child, and I don't remember actually being all that bothered by it. I don't know why. Maybe I didn't get it. Maybe I didn't really understand. Maybe I just didn't care. But I can tell you now, as a father, it troubles me deeply. It evokes a lot of questions for me, a lot of questions to God. Why in the world would God have us do something like this? Why in the world would God work like this? It makes me ask a lot of questions. And while you can easily say, well, you know, something good happens in the end and there's a ram there. I I don't want us to move too quickly to to the Mount of Moriah. I want to be right where Abraham is when, when God tells him that this is what he wants him to do. And it would make you, it seems to me, most of us at least, who love our children, wonder why in the world would God allow something like this? But honestly, I don't have just questions for God. I have questions for Abraham here. Did you hear in this text how it goes that God tells him, take him and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. And the very next thing the narrator tells us is that early the next morning, Abraham saddles up the donkey and they begin walking toward Moriah. 
I mean, where is the anger? Where are the questions? Where is the confusion? And I want to, you could say, well, maybe the narrator left that out. Oh, no. I am going to be asking questions so loudly that no narrator is going to leave it out of this story. Where is the wondering God after 25 years, you finally give me this gift. This is the hope for the future. And all of a sudden now you are, looks like you're going to take him away from me. And all we hear from Abraham, as one scholar has put it, are his footsteps as he walks toward Moriah. Why? The silence from Abraham. In 2002, I was uh, in the middle of seminary, and one of the things I had to do at seminary was I had to work at a, at a hospital as a chaplain one summer. And I was not looking forward to it. No offense to our doctors and nurses here, but hospitals are no fun. And so I, I, I was kind of dreading it throughout as I knew it was coming, as I knew I had to go. And so finally I went. I was in Kansas City. I worked at a place called Research Medical Center. It was a, a very fancy name. And so uh, I, I went in, and, and I got to tell you, the first few days were okay. I mean, the cafeteria had some pretty good cookies, quite frankly. And, and after having been there, just that first day, I got this beeper that was really cool. I don't know if you guys like beepers, but I thought it was pretty cool because, you know, you'd wear the beeper and you'd be talking to somebody. And all of a sudden, you start beeping. You'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm being paged here. I'm pretty important. And, uh, and sure enough... You know, it was a buddy saying, come down, the cookies are hot, or whatever it is. And so I would, and so I would take off, right? It, it even, that, that summer working as a, as, a, as a chaplain got me out of a speeding ticket, right? Now, that's another story for another day, but this was not too bad. And about six days into it, uh, I was given my first overnight, okay? So 11 times during the summer, we had to be overnight in case a chaplain was desperately in need and they couldn't wait another five or 10 minutes. We were there sleeping in the hospital. And, and so there was a regular hospital room. Some of my friends at the hospitals, they, they, their little room was like a hotel room, right? The doctor's, you know, room was really nice, but I was in a regular hospital room, right? And so there I was. Now, truth be told, it was kind of cool because even though I was almost 30, being able to like with the bed, that was pretty cool, right? I mean, who doesn't like doing that? So, so there I was, and that, that took up a good hour or so, right? And, and so I, there was a television. I was able to watch something. I, I kept, I, I didn't do it. I kept being tempted hitting the nurse's button to see if I could get a Sprite or something. But I thought, you know, this is not too bad. So finally, about 11.30, the adrenaline of, of, of moving the bed up and down kind of faded away. And so I, I decided to go to sleep. And so I did. And about three hours later, at 2.30 in the morning, the beeper went off. It says I was needed in the emergency room. And so I, I got up quickly, you know, and you know what it's like when you've only slept for three hours. And I needed to look chaplain-y. And so I, I looked and I was like, you know, the hair was really messed up. And I had put on a tie. It was not a good scene. So I downed some scope and I went down not knowing what in the world I would discover in the emergency room. And I walked into that room, and it was utter chaos. 
Doctors and nurses were going this way and that. Commands were being shouted out one way or another. And there in front of this, there in this bed in front of me was a 19-year-old, I will call him a boy, who had been shot several times. And I stood there. I didn't know what to do. I kind of took a couple steps back. I felt like I'd kind of climbed into a television and all of a sudden shown up in Grey's Anatomy or, or ER. I mean, it was this kind of out-of-body, weird experience to sit there. I knew I didn't belong there, and I didn't know what to do. And so I just stood back and just watched the scene. And, and clearly I looked lost. And a few minutes later, a nurse came up to me and she said, the family and friends are out in the waiting room. We need you to go tell them that he's going to go to surgery. But you could tell the odds were not good. And so I walk, I can remember walking down that hallway with these doors leading out to the waiting room, not knowing what would happen. And I opened up the waiting room. And there were probably 10 to 12 sets of eyes that were staring at me. They wanted to know what was happening to their son, to their grandson, to their cousin, and to their friend. And they wanted to know some answers from me. And so I told them the situation best as I could. And immediately some began hugging, others began crying, and others began just staring at me in disbelief. They wanted to know more than what I could tell them, but they wanted to know not just what are the odds or what are the chances. They wanted to know why. They wanted reasons. And those questions got deeper and deeper as the night progressed. Four hours later when the surgery was done and I sat in the room as the doctor came in to tell them that he didn't have much longer. Two hours later, there was about 15 or 20 of us, and we circled around the hospital bed. This 19-year-old's heartbeat got slower and slower. Before you know it, it had stopped. And I have never heard such wailing in all of my life. Two or three of them flung themselves onto this young man. Screams of why. And they looked to me for answers. And I could tell them, you know what? God is there. God's here. This is not the end. But let's be honest, that wasn't enough for this 19-year-old. It wasn't enough for those who loved him and cared for him. They had more questions. They wanted to know why God could allow something like this to happen. And while I certainly said some things, and while I certainly prayed, truth be told, mostly, I was silent. I wonder, as I think about Abraham in this time, if perhaps the reasoning why he's not screaming out is not because he doesn't have questions. It's not because he's not angry. 
but it's because of the fact that he simply does not know why and he does not have anything to say. I'm sure the questions abounded for him. I'm sure the confusion and anger were rampant. And yet what Abraham decided to do was to simply keep walking. It doesn't take a pastor very long to be in a church to know that there are a lot of people in this world, a lot of good Christ-following people who have questions that they'd like to have answered. Oftentimes I see it around a parent who's lost a child, or someone who has a, a cancer diagnosis, or there's been abuse, lots of different things, lots of different tra- tragedies. People oftentimes, they want to know why. They are upset with God. They don't quite know what to do. And some of them, some of them stop walking because of it. Some of them stop walking after God because those questions are not answered. And as I was thinking about that this week, and as I was looking over this, There is one time, there is one time when Abraham says something. It's right after Isaac asked the very poignant question. I'm noticing we're missing something here. Where is the sheep? And Abraham responds like this. He says, God will provide the sheep. God will provide. And as I thought about that, in some ways it seems like it's dodging the question, and yet as you begin to look at it a bit more carefully, it's important to see that the, the literal translation of that in Hebrews is not God will provide, but is that God will see. In other words, God sees. And what Abraham is telling his son, and my guess is what Abraham is actually telling himself, is that God sees, and I, I do not. And yet, I am going to keep trusting, even though I cannot see why this makes any sense in the world at all. Faith for Abraham did not mean that it would explain everything or that there would be no longer any questions as to why things happen as they do. It meant that even in the midst of those questions, when those questions are at their greatest, Abraham said, I will continue to trust that God sees even when I cannot. And that means that I will continue to walk. 
There will be times, as there was for Abraham, when he eventually sees as God sees, when the ram shows up later on. There will be times like that for us, but there will also be times on this side of life when we simply may never quite see as God sees. And at those moments, just like Dennis Bratcher has pointed out, we will have to ask ourselves, are we willing to trust in a God who doesn't always act in the way we think he should? or in the way that we would desire him to. The clear clear question here, of course, is the reality that if we served a God who acted just as we liked and did just what we desired, we would not end up with God, we would end up with us. This goes back to the story of Adam and Eve when they decided that they wanted to be like God. All of us have real questions at different tragic moments of our lives when things don't make sense. It is certainly okay for us to ask questions. It is certainly okay for us to doubt. It is certainly okay for us to be angry. And yet we also have to decide in those moments whether or not we truly believe that God sees more than we do. After last Sunday's sermon, what a great time that was. And I thought, I want to preach on a text like that every Sunday. I mean, those are the kind of sermons and stories that you, you run out the doors and you're excited about. But there are also stories and sermons for which we need to hear, especially when we are going through darker periods of our lives. So that we can remember, we can ask ourselves whether or not we truly can trust in God whether we can keep walking and keep hoping, even in those times when we are confused by what is going on in our lives. This is a story, it seems to me, of raw, honest, and vulnerable faith. It's also a story, I'm going to tell you, that is... Not exactly perfect on a Sunday when you're going to have a baptism. And at today's 1030 service, we're going to have a baptism. And and about two months ago, Brian and Stephanie Rockensus, which there's no better last name than Rockensus. They called me up. This is them right there. Isn't it beautiful? Look Look at Mason. Thanks, Steve. And they said, hey, we want to have our child baptized. And I thought, that's great. I love baptisms. They said, okay, well, we want to do it on September 21st. I said, why not? And then a little bit later, I looked and I said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. This is horrible. This is their firstborn son.
I thought baptisms are times when kids get dressed up and they, they come up and extra families here and we take pictures. Maybe they go out for lunch. It's a, it's a joyous celebration. Not the time to talk about a story like this. I mean, it messes up the beautiful ritual of baptism to talk about sacrifice and death and giving up one's firstborn and only son. And then it hit me. Well, that's what baptism is. Book of Order says that baptism is our participation in Jesus, God's only Son, in His death, His sacrifice, and resurrection. And so while it is certainly fine for us to snicker at how a baby reacts to water, we need to also be reminded of the significance of what baptism is and of the fact that when we say this child is claimed by God, It means we are asking this child to die to himself, to pick up his cross, and to live for Christ. And as we've talked about a lot lately, that means that there will oftentimes be those times and those places where we have to go places we do not necessarily want to go and do things we may not want to do. There will be times of confusion and questions and we have to ask ourselves if we are willing, if Mason is willing to continue to walk. And it's a good reminder to all of the parents that are out here that it takes courage and faith to have your child baptized in this sacrificial faith. It is a reminder to all of us that it takes courage and faith to keep walking even in the midst of tragedy and when you do not have the answers that you desire. It takes courage and faith to believe in a God that you cannot see. And to believe that that God can see everything, even when you cannot. Do we have the faith and the courage, not just to follow God when God makes sense and when things are going swimmingly, but do we have the faith and the courage to follow God even in the midst of tragedy? even when those questions are unanswered? Do we believe that God sees everything? Do we genuinely believe that God is God and that we are not? May we have the faith of Abraham to keep walking even when we are wondering. Amen.